You're listening to a podcast from Washington Post Live, bringing the Post's newsroom to life on stage. Representative Raul Ruiz joins Washington Post Live to discuss longstanding barriers to health care in the Latino community and his recent legislation to address the physician shortage in underserved and rural areas. Let's listen. Good afternoon and welcome to Washington Post Live. I'm Mariana Sotomayor, congressional reporter for The Washington Post. Joining me today as part of our Race in America series is Congressman Raul Ruiz from California. He currently serves as the chairman of the Congressional Hispanic Caucus and is also a trained physician. Congressman, thank you so much for joining us today. So wonderful to be here, thank you. So before we get to our very important conversation on health disparities affecting the Latino community, I, you know, it's always a breaking news day on Capitol Hill. And I do want to ask you your reaction to the January 6th committee hearing. It's been very emotional testimony. What are your takeaways and and also your hopes for this committee as it continues investigating what happened earlier this year? My reaction watching the hearing was gut-wrenching. And it, it, I couldn't help but be transported back into the gallery uh, in the House floor where I was one of the last ones evacuated and really feeling the intensity and the danger that existed. And working now, watch, watching that hearing, uh, working to not feel angry and anger at those individuals and those members of Congress who propagated and riled up the crowd with the big lie. Uh, and and to hear the testimonies of the officers whose lives were in danger, who were so heroic, made me feel so appreciative for them and feel so uh, so uh, sorry for their families that they had to go through that as well. Uh, And so I'm hopeful that we can really shed light and give this January 6th its true nature, its true color, its true, its truth that it was an attempt to prevent the transfer of power on the day the Constitution says we need to count the Electoral College in order to illegally keep President Trump in office. Uh, And as we saw there, there was a lot of issues of white supremacy and white nationalism and racism that was combined with this insurrection uh, attempt to prohibit the the constitutional legitimate transfer of power uh, to a new administration. And so uh, hopefully this will bring accountability, this will bring clarity, and this will make us a better nation. And hopefully this will bring us together to really defend our constitution. Now, pivoting back to the pandemic, we also are expecting some new regulations from the CDC, some new uh, potential reversal from their mass mandate that they issued just a couple months ago, which is that they are now recommending vaccinated people to actually start wearing masks indoors again in certain circumstances due to just the potency of this Delta variant. You, you are a doctor. You have been in the ER. You have been administering vaccines to many people um, throughout this pandemic. Do you think that this is the right call? You know, Mariana, you said it. I'm an emergency medicine physician and I'm a trained uh, expert in public health, especially public health crisis, emergencies, disasters. And I have already uh, in my personal life implemented the wearing masks indoors. 
uh, and for several reasons. One is because the Delta virus is that much more contagious, and we're seeing cases of, of breakthrough infections, even hospitalization uh, for individuals who have been vaccinated. However, I must say that 98% of those that are hospitalized are people who have not been vaccinated. So the vaccine does provide a significant amount of protection. Um, but it, there, we're starting to see breakthrough with those that have been vaccinated. And many of those infections uh, of people that have been vaccinated are still mild and don't need to be hospitalized. However, they have active inf infections and they can be contagious to other people. So they can act as vectors, which is another reason why I've started to wear masks indoors is because I have six-year-old twin daughters and they're not vaccinated. So I don't want to bring anything home. Uh, so I do think that it's not necessary a reversal or contradiction of a policy. It is matching the current state of infection rates in those localities that have increasing rate of infection or case rates per day or the average per week. Uh, and I do think that it is appropriate if you're in a county or in a location where the Delta virus is starting to increase in terms of positivity rate, if we are starting to see a increasing slope rise in hospitalization rates, uh, that, uh, that it is appropriate to start implementing these precautions once again, because don't forget, that whatever you see now is going to be the trend for the next two weeks. Whatever you act on now for the precautions isn't necessarily going to take that much of an effect until two weeks later. That's just the nature of how fast the, uh, the coronavirus is spreading. And it could even take three weeks just because the Delta virus spreads that much faster. And so, uh, so we really need to think two steps ahead or two, three weeks ahead in what we recommend. So you mentioned this and it's something that we're seeing now that a lot more of the population is becoming vaccinated. 98% to 99% of these hospitalizations are from unvaccinated people. But there is a lot of vaccine hesitancy out there and misinformation has really plagued the Latino community, whether it comes in, in the pandemic, we saw it happen also during the last presidential election with Latinos being targeted even in their personal space. We use WhatsApp a lot, you and I know, coming from the Latino community. Um, what needs to be done to try and convince members of the community that they shouldn't be skeptical or hesitant to get the vaccine? What are you doing about that? Thank you for that question, Mariana, because I, you know, I want to give that question context. Uh, there is uh, a very underrepresentation of vac of those vaccinated from the Latino community. Uh, in other words, there is a very disproportionately low vaccination rate in the Latino community compared to other ethnicities. And the main questions that we're asking here is why. And there's two big categories as to why that's the case. One category is access issues with getting the vaccine in a location that is uh, logistically possible for you in a method that is appropriate for you in, the, in your region, in your community. Uh, and that is the healthcare systematic barriers that the communities often face that exist in the pandemic and the outreach 
uh, for vaccination campaigns, and therefore people are not getting vaccinated because those barriers exist. The other category, which by the way, I need to say is a much smaller category and oftentimes overblown is that Latinos simply don't want the vaccine, uh, but it exists. It is not a big as a problem than the systematic disparities in access to care and access to the vaccines. And I say that with evidence from a Kaiser Family Foundation uh, poll that they recently uh, did that showed that black and brown populations, Latinos, when given the option to get the vaccine, they really want the vaccine. They want to protect their families and they want to be safe as they go to work because they are more likely to be essential workers and have a higher risk of getting infection. So it's that they want the vaccine, it's just they can't access the vaccine. However, they're speaking now to those groups in the Latino community that, uh, that are scared of the vaccine. Uh, that comes from a lot of of, of notions that the vaccines in general may have the side effect. There's a lot of misinformation out there that it would cause infertility, that, uh, that it may lead to cancers, or that there are more uh, true misinformation that are not politically driven, but that are just straight up false, uh, uh, that make people afraid of wanting to get the vaccine or that they feel that the costs are way too, uh, way higher than the benefits of getting the vaccine. That's a different type of misinformation than white Republican males, which are a larger category of individuals who don't want the vaccine. That misinformation is a lot of politically driven, pro-Trump, uh, libertarian, don't have the government control your life, this is just a democratic ploy to, to force you in doing things you don't want to do, which is all misinformation, of course, uh, not based on reality or not at least based on science. Uh, and so we have to address this type of misinformation differently in the different communities. And within the Latino community, there's sophisticated firms who are proactively doing this type of misinformation through social media. Uh, Instagram, uh, Facebook, Twitter, and that are targeting those uh, with uh, Spanish uh, usage of Facebook or other things to really propagate this misinformation and myths. So you mentioned that Latinos do want to get this vaccine. They just don't have access to it. Access to healthcare isn't something new. These disparities have existed, but the pandemic has really brought them to light. Um, can you tell us some other ways in which the pandemic has really hurt or at least put the Latino community behind in some ways? I know there was recently a CDC study that, that said that Latinos actually, when it comes to life expectancy, lost three years of their life due to COVID. Let me use the farm worker community as an example. The farm worker community is primarily 90 plus percent uh, Hispanic, Latino, Latinas out there, uh, many uh, recent immigrants uh, uh, and some second, third generation as well. So you have a good mixture, but this is a community that is the highest risk of getting infected, infecting others and dying and or being hospital, uh, hospitalized from COVID-19. Now, specifically in relation to the coronavirus and the risk of getting infected, 
farm workers and Latinos are more likely to be at higher risk because they are more likely workers in essential jobs. In other words, they have to go to work to keep our society functioning. These are the food supply chains, uh, those that work in our grocery stores, our packing houses, our fields, uh, those that work in transportation and sanitation to keep our public health systems going. Uh, and even those that work in hospitals uh, uh, in, in the front line as well. Uh, so they are at risk of being in the public, interfacing with the public because they are essential workers like farm workers. Then if they get infected, they're more likely to spread it to their family members because they are at higher uh, risk of living in substandard overcrowded housing. Uh, they may not have the attic or the basement that they can self-isolate away from the rest of their family members. Oftentimes there's three generations, there's grandparents and, and grandchildren with, with, the, with their parents uh, living in a two bedroom apartment, a house, a trailer park like I did growing up or in other type of housings that really focus and concentrate the families together. So when you go home, it's difficult to separate yourself from the others. And so you infect the family. Then you're more likely to get sick and hospitalized or even die from COVID-19 because there is those chronic health disparities that we've seen with individuals who live in poverty, uh, who face systematic barriers to care. So there are higher rates of di uncontrolled diabetes. There's higher rates of asthma due to poverty and uh, substandard housing uh, and be living in underdeveloped areas with polluted air. There's higher rates of COPD. There's higher rates of cardiac diseases. And those are precisely the individuals that get severely sick with the coronavirus. Then if you do get sick, you are less likely if you're Latino to live in a community that have enough doctors, nurses, clinics, uh, hospitals to take care of you, and you don't have the uh, information available or easily accessible to learn about the coronavirus and how to keep yourself and your family safe and how to maintain your health afterward. So all of this is a recipe as to why Latinos have faced such a high burden, one of the highest burdens of the coronavirus. This is why it's so important that when we do the precautions, when we talk about masking up or keeping safe, uh, we need to gauge the, uh, the, uh, the effects of not doing so at a higher amplification for Latinos, African-Americans, and Native Americans, because a little change can save a lot more lives in those communities because they're affected most. And so these are the reasons why we, we face these disparities. So one of the solutions you've actually proposed is legislation and at the federal level to actually address the physician shortage that exists right now in the country, especially in those underserved or rural areas. Can you tell me a little bit more of how that legislation will specifically address a number of those concerns that you brought up and how you see it passing in an already jam-packed legislative calendar? Well, our nation has a very severe uh, provider shortage crisis to begin with. We, there are some estimates that we need something like 20,000 more providers in our country. 
But on top of that crisis, there's another more targeted crisis in that the there is a disparity or a mismatch of those physicians working in locations where they needed most. There's a high concentration in very affluent urban areas, and there is a dearth or a severe shortage in underserved or more suburban or rural areas where you see more uh, impoverished communities. So, for example, in my district, California's 36th district in Southern California, in the Coachella Valley, in the eastern side where I grew up in a farm worker community and the first few years of my life in a farm worker trailer park, we have one full-time equivalent physician per 9,000 residents. I did the research in 2009 and, uh, and it hasn't gotten that much better. It, it, there's some improvement, but we, there's still a physician shortage. The recommended number in our country is one physician per 2,000 people. Uh, to be considered a medically underserved area, it's one physician per 3,500 people. So we are severely short on physicians. So there's two big efforts that I've been really pushing. One is I've been really augmenting the authorization and the funding for the teaching health centers. Those are the federal qualified health centers, community health centers that exist primarily in underserved areas. Because if you create residency programs in those areas that serve those communities, primarily getting the residents who grew up in those areas then they're more likely to stay and practice in those areas. So that's one effort that we've been successful in doing in the Energy and Commerce Committee of which I, I'm a member of. The second effort is to expand the flexibility uh, uh, of hospitals that have residency programs in rural areas. So currently they have about five years to develop their full set of residencies. And when you're in an under-resourced rural community as a hospital, it takes time for you to develop partnerships with universities. It takes time for you to raise the capital to hire uh, more physician uh, attendings that can train the medical students and the, the residencies. And it takes time for you to, to develop your general practice residencies and then your specialists like cardiology, neurology, or general surgery. And then on top of that, neurosurgery, cardiothoracic surgery, uh, gastrointestinal surgery. And so, so my bill would provide certain criteria which would add the flexibility for those hospitals to have at least a, a 10 years to be able to develop their full set of residency training. But we need to shift our thinking of just looking at the end stage of training to create more doctors and look at this in a pipeline form uh, and start really actively targeting and recruiting middle school and high school uh, students and put them into pipelines that focus on fostering their interests recruiting from underserved communities, then partnering with universities so they can enter as pre-med, go into medical school, then into residencies that they have training into the underserved areas. Because the two biggest predictors of where a physician is eventually going to practice are where they're from and where they last trained. And so I created a pipeline that's now housed under the University of California Riverside called Future Physician Leaders, where I recruited from underserved communities in my district 
And it is a pipeline sponsored by UCR where they have pre-med mentorship programs. They can go into residencies. And now we've developed residency programs in their communities. So the goal is that they will come back, serve as residents and stay in those communities. And we need to amplify that, uh, make that a program, a model program for the rest of the nation so that we can really focus and targeted not only producing more doctors, but doctors that will serve where they're needed the most. That's all very interesting. Uh, you know, just listening to what you've been saying, you've mentioned two groups that have come up in other conversations. You've mentioned essential workers. You've also mentioned farm workers. And they, of course, are always discussed when it comes to immigration, which has really been a focal point for the CHC and a lot of other uh, Democratic members who want to make sure that the reconciliation bill includes a pathway to citizen citizenship, not just for them, but also DREAMers and TPS recipients. As of right now, it's unclear if it'll, it'll pass the Senate parliamentarian judgment um, to be included in this legislation. And a couple members of the CHC have suggested this could be a red line for them to actually support these pieces of legislation if immigration is not addressed. What are those conversations among members and will you support any legislation that does not include immigration and in that pathway to citizenship? Well, thank you for that question, Mariana, because this is uh, an effort that the Congressional Hispanic Caucus has led on for many years. And we find ourselves using an all of the above, any which way possible strategy to move pieces of legislation that will fix our broken immigration system. And we were successful in passing two critical bills out of the House this year, the Dream and Promise Act, which would give a pathway to citizenship for dreamers and TPS holders, and the Farm Workforce Modernization Act, which would give a pathway to citizenship and protections for farm workers and their families. Those are now in the Senate, and there's a bipartisan group that's trying to work on how to move those forward. It's you know it's 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 moving slow, too slow for for my um, for my, in my perspective. So the next opportunity is through budget reconciliation. And we have four very important bills. Those two that I mentioned, including President Biden's vision of immigration, big, bold immigration reform, which is U.S. Citizenship Act, held by uh, Senator Menendez and Representative Linda Sanchez. And we also have the Citizenship for Essential Workers Act, uh, sponsored by Representative Joaquin Castro and Senator Padilla, all of which are CHC members. And so the idea is to extract the pieces of uh, immigration reform is specifically a pathway to citizenship for as many undocumented immigrants as possible that we can pass the budget reconciliation uh, uh, bird rule standard and show the parliamentarian that indeed this is an economic budget issue and should be included into a budget reconciliation package. For example, we've had a recent uh, Center for American Progress study uh, that was very close to a study that was done in 2013 that showed that we can increase our GDP by $1.7 trillion in 10 years uh, with this pathway to citizenships and these provisions of immigration reform. In addition to that, we would produce hundreds of thousands of new American jobs uh, if we move this piece. And that means that there's less reliance on social services 
which means more taxes and more revenues, which means it's a budget issue. And overall, it would increase American salaries, American family salaries across the board. So it has economic budgetary positive implications, budgetary implications. And so we're going to make our best bet and our best arguments to the parliamentarian. Now, I believe that the CAC members that are coming out strong are making the statements to really, to really demonstrate to their colleagues that this is a very important issue. This is a must-do issue. And I agree that it is a must-do issue. That's why we've been working, started months ago in preparing the path and the arguments and, and really bringing everybody aligned. And so far, things are looking good, in fact. But um, I don't like to put a red line uh, on, uh, or, or a line in the sand on things that I have no control over. So if the parliamentarian uh, chooses otherwise, then, then there's nothing you know, at that point that, that, that we're going to do uh, that is, is going to uh, change the outcome. And there's a lot of other positive things in the, in the American Jobs and the American Families Plan that will benefit our, our communities uh, in its entirety. So at this point, our main focus is to get it in. Uh, we have, it looks like $120 billion uh, allocated to the judiciary committees that they can work on that. Uh, we have the first step is to uh, pass the instructions of the budget reconciliation. Once we do that, then the details of the language in immigration reform can be hashed out in committee so that we can vote on it. And I'm very hopeful. I'm very optimistic. And we have a very strong strategy and very strong arguments to make. Well, Congressman, I know it's a busy day every day on Capitol Hill, but it seems like today especially is one. So thank you so much for joining us today. I really appreciate you know, chatting about this and shining a light on all of these subjects. I had a wonderful time. Thank you. Thank you so much. And I want to thank all of the viewers for tuning in today. If you want to see any more programming that's coming up in the next several weeks, please go to WashingtonPostLive.com. I'm Mariana Sotomayor, and thanks again for tuning in to Washington Post Live. Thanks for listening. To hear more interviews from this series and other Washington Post Live programs, visit us at WashingtonPostLive.com.